Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with our hearts open, desiring to hear you speak. We pray that your spirit would be among us, that when we hear, we would understand and obey. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. People of God, in the BBC version of the play Shadowlands, the story of C.S. Lewis's marriage and loss of his wife Joy to cancer, Lewis meets Joy for the first time, and as they begin talking, they come upon the difficult questions of the Christian faith, questions about life and suffering. And as they walk along the river in the cold of winter, Lewis asks Joy, do you know how to dive? And Joy says, no. Lewis explains, I learned to dive the summer I learned I was a Christian. In order to dive, you have to learn to stop doing something. You need to learn to stop trying to preserve yourself. You have to let go. In the story of Job, the main character has come to the final stage of his grief. And we'll find that this stage will become the next step into deeper faith. But in this transition to deeper faith, Job is going to have to learn to let go, to, tr to stop trying to preserve himself, to stop trying to preserve his own integrity. Job's final test of endurance comes in the, f in the form of a fourth friend, Elihu. Elihu puts the icing on the cake by rebuking Job's three other friends for their judgmental attitudes about Job and then by adding his own judgment. According to Elihu, Job is unwilling to be submissive to God and thereby accept that God's ways are not his ways. The trouble with Elihu's advice is that while he makes several good points, it's smug, and his viewpoints are so worn out, his language is so hackneyed, that it simply adds to Job's frustration at not being heard. Elihu points in the right direction, perhaps, but his attitude is, is still that Job simply needs to admit that he has done something wrong and get it over with. And to the end, that Job clings to the belief that he has done nothing wrong, Elihu believes that he comes under God's judgment. And as Elihu's speech comes to its zenith, he begins to use the language of a gathering storm. He says, God's voice thunders from the storm. His mighty deeds be are beyond understanding. God scatters the lightning in the clouds. He brings the clouds to punish mankind. And we discover that in many respects, Elihu's theology is really no better than that of Job's other friends. Elihu embraces the ancient notion, the pagan notion, that the weather patterns are simply a reflection of God's emotions, simple cause and effect. When storms come, God is angry. 
And this kind of simplistic theology is riddled through all the advice that Job's friends offer. But as the storm gathers, Elihu finally falls silent. This time he's silenced not by Job, but by the thunderous voice of God. I have this humorous image in my mind of Elihu speaking from his soapbox, making these pompous statements about God's judgment coming in the clouds and the wind and the storm when the sky actually begins to darken and the birds fall silent. The wind starts to pick up until Elihu and Job's other friends go mute. Everyone becomes speechless when the tempest begins. And after 37 chapters of Job pleading his cause on and off, even Job has stopped asking for answers and is now simply asking to be answered. All he longs for is a face-to-face with God. And from the whirlwind, Job is finally granted his audience with God. But the encounter is nothing like anyone has anticipated. Virginia Woolf once wrote to a friend, I read the book of Job last night. I don't think God comes off well in it. Of course, it all depends on what kind of God you're looking for. If you expect that God is going to give Job a perfectly reasonable and clear explanation for what has happened, then you're going to be sorely disappointed. God seldom works that way. And upon reflection, I'm not sure we would want him to. G.K. Chesterton once commented that God, a God who met all of our expectations and made perfect sense to us, would not be a God worthy of our worship because he would be nothing more than human invention. If we expect God to justify himself before Job, then we're looking for a different kind of God than the God of scriptures. Robert Frost joked that God would have to say to Job, look, Job, I was just showing off to the devil. But that sort of God is also unworthy of our trust. What we're given is a God who speaks from the whirlwind a God who helps us to remember who God is and who we are before God. He asks, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me, if you have understanding, who marked off the dimensions of the earth? Who laid its cornerstone? Where were you when the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? This is not what we want. This is not what we anticipated. We expected God to either come out of the whirlwind to say, Job, your friends are right. You're a terrible sinner. Repent here and now or I'll squash you like a bug. Or we might expect God to say, Job, you are right. You've done nothing wrong and here's the reason why it all happened. This will make perfect sense to you once I explain it. And think of all the people who will be inspired by your memoirs 3,000 years from now. But instead, all Job gets from God 
is 20 questions. Rhetorical questions at that. And the only appropriate answer, the only appropriate response to these questions are, yes, sir, no, sir, and I don't know, sir. The mistake that Job's friends had made is that they had reduced the creator of the universe to a formula. They had God completely figured out. They knew precisely how God works in the world, and they seldom hesitated to share that news. Job's mistake is that he has, in the process of his grief, become so preoccupied with himself that he has forgotten something of who God is. Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, writes, When people say that they have met God, they mean that they've been interrupted and turned inside out. They've experienced a process in which they are put at question at the deepest level. As a Christian, I'm struggling for a discipline that stops me from taking myself for granted as the fixed center of the little universe and enables me to find and lose myself constantly in the interweaving patterns of a world that I did not make and do not control. If we lose sight of the beauty and terror of Job's God in the whirlwind, then we're taming the vision to the scope of what we can cope with. And in the end, we lose the Christian God. When God finally answers Job, he does so by taking Job on an overwhelming guided tour of the creation. And for four chapters... God goes on and on in magnificent Hebrew poetry about the wonders and splendors of his creation. The purpose of pointing Job toward the creation is the unselfing of Job. Job has gone through all the stages of mourning and then some. Job has never, or excuse me, God has never denied the legitimacy of Job's mourning the legitimacy of Job's pain. But eventually, God calls Job to step outside of himself into a larger world. And so God gives Job, oddly enough, lessons in cosmology, zoology, and meteorology as a way of reminding them that the whole cosmos speaks of God's benevolent care and God's creative delight in everything he's made. God created the ostrich and the snowstorm. He controls the monsters, Leviathan and Behemoth. He makes the hawks and eagles soar above the heavens. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, Earth is crammed with heaven and every bush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. Job is now being given a chance to see. And God asks, do you control the rain and the thunderstorms? Are you able to count the clouds in the sky? Do you hunt with the lion or provide food for the raven? You see, Job's problem is not that he has sinned. His problem is simply that he's limited. He's finite which is fine if you accept that, if you accept it as the human condition. 
It only becomes a problem when you demand more than being a creature. You shall be as gods, the serpent said. That's when the trouble begins. But contrary to Job's friends' opinions, God's ways are not beyond Job because Job has committed some great evil. God's ways are beyond Job because, like all of us, Job is a creature. God's rebuke of Job is simply a reminder of just who is who. And Job, knowing that he has been blameless, nevertheless came to the conclusion then that God must have made the mistake. He believed that making his case before the divine court, God would see the wisdom of his position and admit his failure, and Job would be vindicated. British philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote the infamous book, Why I Am Not a Christian, where he says, in essence, since God has not given me a satisfactory answer to all of my questions about the world, then I refuse to believe in him. To this sort of pretense, God responds, is it necessary to make me wrong in order for you to be right? In other words, when we face something in life that we don't understand or appreciate, why do we arrogantly assume that God must give us an answer? What makes us believe that we could ever even comprehend such an answer? And why would we think that the only solution to the dilemma is that either God is right or we are? From the whirlwind, God challenges this simplistic either-or thinking. God can be right even when we don't fully understand. God doesn't have to meet our test of approval. One of the ever-present dangers of contemporary Christianity is that in our attempt to make God relevant, we end up domesticating him. We create a God of our own imagination. As Chesterton again says, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. But any God that we invent will never be of any help to us. When we try to package God in a way that makes him palatable to our society or to ourselves, then we tend to reduce God, the God of creation to a mere product. We reduce the mystery of God's revelation to a slogan on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. The real irony of God's rebuke of Job is that it seems in the end that Job has committed the same error as his friends. They've learned to interpret their experience as the clear, almost mathematical sign of how God works in the world. Prosperity equals God's favor. Suffering equals God's wrath. But Job has made a similar mistake. He concludes that his personal experience must be a direct, re a direct reflection of his relationship with God. If he is suffering, God must be up to something. And he asks, why is this happening to me? What is God doing to me? And of course, we all know that we're prone to do the same. 
when we go through a period of disorienting pain, we usually assume that something is wrong, that God must be unhappy. Whenever we feel lonely or unlovable, we conclude that we must then be alone and unloved. For all the benefits of modern psychology, the past hundred years of therapeutic culture has taught us the dangerous lie that our feelings are our real selves. We're told that when we look within ourselves, it's there that we'll find the real truth. Over 150 years ago, French observer Alexis de Tocqueville commented about his experience in America. He said, each citizen is habitually engaged in the contemplation of a very puny object, namely himself. This seems to be more true than ever. In fact, it seems to be the very identity of our society. We've become a, a culture of navel gazers. We've become dangerously preoccupied with ourselves. Be true to yourself has become the primary religious mantra of our age. And the only sin, apparently, is self-denial. Television portrays a woman who leaves her husband and child behind in order to pursue a lesbian relationship as a real hero, someone who's finally acting with integrity. The unwed mother who aborts her child is pictured as courageous. If you no longer feel love for your spouse and have found the real thing with a coworker, then no one but the intolerant would expect you to keep your marriage vows and remain faithful to your family. If the church, if the church family that baptized you and nurtured you and supported you through the hard times of your life isn't giving you the good feelings that you want on Sunday morning, then you're perfectly right in shopping around. Yet the lesson of Scripture again and again is that the truth is not found within us. It is not discovered in our feelings. In fact, to become a Christian is to be unselfed, to be drawn out of our selfishness into a larger world of what God is doing. Jürgen Moltmann wrote, the one who is born again cannot be scrupulously and anxiously preoccupied with himself. His life has become new because being oriented toward new creation, he now lives in the presence of the Spirit of God and under his influence. Our theology as Christians is not to be shaped by our day-to-day -day experiences or the precarious emotional state of the self. Our theology is to be shaped by God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ. And sometimes this is all we have to cling to when everything else seems dark. I may sense that I'm alone, but Jesus speaks with divine authority when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I may come to feel that I'm unlovable or unforgivable, but God has written the final and definitive statement to that fact 
in the blood of the cross. Our feelings will lead us in all sorts of directions that are contrary to the revealed word of God. But one of the great disciplines of the Christian life will be to permit God to unself us, to lead us by the hand out of darkness, the darkness of our own ego, and into the light of the larger world he made. The reason we fight so tenaciously against being unselfed is because we equate it with being humiliated or demeaned. Nobody wants to be a doormat. But the Bible sees our unselfing as something else entirely. The result of Job's encounter with God and his unselfing is that he's restored to the full stature of his humanity. His encounter with God reminds him that God is God and that Job is a fully dignified reflection of God's image. Far from being crushed by his encounter with God, far from being erased, Job is dignified. But he is humbled. He says, now I know that I've spoken of the unspeakable. I have tried to grasp the infinite. Until now, I have heard of you with my ears, but now I have seen you with my eyes. Therefore, I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. In the end, Job's friends are reprimanded. Job's righteousness is vindicated, and his fortunes are restored. God gives him double the wealth he had before, the blessing of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc. But the interesting thing about the close of this story is what is still left unanswered. We're really given no answer to the question of the problem of pain. We're really given no clear solution to why people suffer. And even Job's vindication, his restoration, is not without poignancy. Because you can replace cattle and crops, sheep and camels, but you can never replace lost children. This is not a Walt Disney ending to this story. We still live in a world filled with pain, death Death still surrounds us. But what God offers us is not theoretical answers or even a theology of suffering. What God offers us is the opportunity to be unselfed, to be led by the hand out of the confinement of our own ego into the larger world of his good creation, into a world where God is revealed not so much as the God we want, but as the God we need. Job teaches us to trust a God who orders the universe, who can create life out of a world of death. John Donne put it this way, he brought light out of darkness, not out of a lesser light. He can bring thy summer out of winter, though thou have no spring.
At the close of the BBC movie Shadowlands, C.S. Lewis has just gone through the terrible dark night of the soul as he mourns the loss of his wife, Joy. And in his agony, the, the viewer begins to wonder whether this great giant of the faith will ever recover his trust in God. The final scene, Lewis is pictured walking along the river with Joy's two little boys, just as spring is beginning to bud. And he asks the boys, do you know how to dive? When summer comes, I'll teach you how to dive. In order to dive, you have to learn to stop doing something. You have to learn to stop trying to preserve yourself. You need to let go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.